Hi, I'm Kosha. And I'm Shailushi. And we're sisters and the co-hosts of the podcast, I Am Speaking with Shailushi and Kosha. This podcast focuses on sharing and amplifying the voices of people who have felt othered. We've had the chance to hear so many amazing stories. And during season two, one of our running jokes together was that once VP Kamala Harris heard about this podcast, she was definitely going to call us to be a guest, but that we would have to turn her down because her story didn't fit with our theme for that season. But that joke was really the seed for this series. I am speaking with expert voices, an arm of our original and still ongoing podcast. We're excited to share with you the stories and expertise of people who are at the forefront of their fields. And Madam Vice President, with the launch of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, we are now ready for you to join us at any time. I think that was good, right? Hello, everyone. I am Brittany Squillis. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I specialize mainly in grief, focusing on death losses and non-death losses. Work with some couples, but mainly it's individuals battling some sort of grief journey or honoring some sort of grief journey. And I am speaking. Wonderful. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Where are you located? I'm in Minnesota. Oh, Oh, you have been getting it. The last time I talked to you, Kosha, that we had a snowstorm and I was like, oh, come on. Oh, yeah. Your internet was being glitchy. Mm -hmm. It was super glitchy. Yeah. So that would have been that would have been maybe two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago when you all had about 24 inches dumped on you. Like my husband's family is from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. So they also got bashed in that in that uh, line of things. Although just uh, as a. I have a friend who is visiting in-laws in Truckee, California, and they got 14 feet of snow. Feet. 14 feet. No. Yeah, I know. I've been seeing that. I'm like, what is that? Okay. That's too many feet. 14 feet of snow. I mean, not all in one day, but like they're basically snowed in there. So it's really something else. So Brittany. Happy to be here. (laughs) Instead of talking about weather, let's talk about what you're actually here to talk about, which is grief, grieving, and its effect on mental health and mental wellness. Um, but I just want to start a you start by getting sort of your, like you said, you're a licensed marriage and family therapist. Yes. LMFT. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but your work is largely with individuals who are grieving. Walk us through your process of, you know, I'm going to be a therapist to, I really want to focus on this issue. Yeah. I appreciate that question. Um, and it's, well, it hasn't really changed over time. Just more um, what grief in what specializing in grief look like looks like has kind of expanded a little bit just recently. But so kind of going way back, starting in my education career, I actually started as a theater major. <laughs> First passion ever. Absolutely loved theater. Loved it too much to totally give up. So I was like, I'm going to go and be a theater star. So yeah. I started as a theater major, quickly learned that that was not a career for me. But again, I loved it too much to totally let it go. So I added my psych degree about halfway through my sophomore year. And it just kind of led me to marriage and family therapy. I've always been interested in why people do what they do. Um, Not so much from a judging standpoint, but more just curiosity and observing of like, oh, that was interesting. And knowing that there may be something more to people's behaviors than what we see on the surface and wanting to understand why and what, what some of those 
reasons be? And how do we go about discovering those? And I love love. I love relationships. I always say I love really hard. <laughs> so that led me to marriage and family therapy and working with couples and family units. But particularly, the licensure of marriage and family therapy is different in the sense of we work very systemically. That's not to say people with other licensures don't. But working systemically means we recognize, even though we're working with an individual, we know there are multiple areas in that individual's life that could be influencing what they're coming in for. So that could be environmental influences, that could be family influences, that can be social influences, society influences. So we explore all the different avenues that make up this whole one person. The marriage and family therapy licensure was really the one to approach it from that point. And I really, really love that. So that's how I kind of led down the road of marriage and family therapy, got my licensure or excuse me, I should say my degree from St. Mary's University in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, took the whole long haul of getting the licensure because marriage and family therapy is a beast and is extremely hard to get. Um, so that took me a little bit longer than I wanted. There was a lot of hardships and grief involved in that a lot of anger that came in that, but we got there. And then I started in group practice. And, you know, when you're doing your practicums and your group practice, it's a lot of figure out your niche, right? What's your specialty going to be? What's going to set you apart from everything? And as a wee widow baby therapist, you're like, oh my God, I don't know. Like what, <laughs> what if I choose the wrong one? Right. And they don't want you to be eclectic. They don't want you to, you know, do anything and everything. You can't be a jack of all trades. Right. So, I mean, you could, but you know, it's kind of seen as what's your validity then? Mm. I don't know. But as you're fresh out of college and you're kind of in your practicums and whatever, you have to work with a little bit of everything. Know, of course, where your scope is and refer out as necessary. But as you start coming across more people, you start learning what you really enjoy working with, what you prefer not to. And one part of that was any person who came in with some sort of grief, whether that was from the death of a loved one or the loss of a job or going through divorce, that is usually the most non-common or excuse me, the most common non-death loss that will, I will encounter. I really, I don't want to say thrived off of working with them, but I felt the most fulfilled when I was working with those clients. So I was like, okay, grief. Hmm. I'm intrigued. Um, I also have my own grief journey a little, I say it's different because I was on the other end. So my paternal grandparents passed about a month of each other back in 2012. I of course had my own grief, but I really struggled watching my dad grieve and struggled in the sense of, I didn't know how to best support him, but I knew what he was getting was not accurate, wasn't appropriate. I realized he wasn't getting what he needed and what he was getting was only making it worse. But I didn't know what to do. So I just sat there and it was hard because this was the summer I was actually staying with my boyfriend, who is now my husband and his parents because I was doing summer school and I had to go back and he was on the iron range, which is an hour north of Duluth. So I was like, okay, it's Sunday and I know I have to leave, but I don't want to leave my dad because he's not getting the support he needs. And, but I didn't know what supporting him looked like. Well, now being in the field that I am, I know that sitting with somebody and just letting them grieve is probably one of the best things that you can do. So from that experience and then coming across clients in practicum and fresh out of school and really feeling fulfilled and working with those who are grieving, I was like, okay, 
Grief is the route that I want to go to not only give people who are grieving a healthy and supportive space to do so in a way that feels true to them, but also to educate and help those who are supporting a loved one who is grieving on how to do that effectively and in a healthy manner. So COVID hits, what better time to open a private practice than during a world pandemic, right? Great time. Absolutely. At least one about grief, then yes. For sure. Absolutely. Well, and it kind of was because it allowed me to, I think it gave me the nudge I needed that I probably wouldn't have taken till way down the road. I was kind of forced into it because the group practice I was with at the time partially closed, meaning the front desk staff stayed to answer phone calls and emails and then all the clinicians worked from home. So other than our monthly staff meeting that was in, that was virtual, I was kind of on my own. So I was like, okay, I'm going to see how this feels. And I loved it. Not that I didn't love working with my team, but it was okay to kind of be on my own. So I did all the legal stuff, blah, 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 and then opened my practice in August of 2020. And as I was doing the research to see, you know, what's the competition, what's needed, the amount of therapists who actually specialize, and I can talk about the difference in that versus just doing grief work. The amount of therapists that actually specialize in grief is very, very slim, at least in my surrounding areas. So I was like, okay, ding. Yeah, there's a spot here. There's an opening. Exactly. Yep. So that's kind of the journey that led me specifically to grief work in particular. And now expanding, a lot of it's been focused on death loss, which I was telling you earlier, of course, grief is most commonly attached to death. And there are a lot of non-death losses or ambiguous losses, such as divorce, loss of a job, retirement, becoming a parent, right? These things that on the surface appear super exciting, but also can carry a lot of grief. Yeah. I'm expanding more into that work as well, because I'm also very passionate about bringing awareness to that's the real thing. And how do we honor that the same way we would honor the grief journey around the death of someone? Yeah, that's, that's so awesome. And I mean, about your focus. Um, I mean, it's obviously very sad when someone loses something in a in a kind of permanent way death is obviously the most permanent loss Mm -hmm. of a person in your life but all of these uh, all of the other things that you described are losses in their own way even if they are accompanied even if they could be accompanied by something um, amazing as well you know a divorce could be it's a loss of your you know, what, what you thought your marriage was going to be like, or the loss of a marriage, loss of your home, your relationships, and maybe it represents something really great on the other side of it. And and I certainly want to talk to you about this because this is such a, I think we're now post pandemic or I don't know, in the middle, however you want to talk Who about Who the hell knows we where we are with it. Yeah. <laughs> I put post in quotes because uh, it's still going on, but we're not like hunkered in our houses the personal and the public, the private and the public are really starting to cross over just like it was kind of impossible for people to, to avoid seeing your cat or your hear your kid when you're on zoom, there's, it's kind of impossible to avoid how our world circumstances have affected and shaped our experiences over the last couple of years and how we or now into the world. Um, but before I get into that, I'd really love to hear, sir, what is the difference between specializing in grief and doing grief work? Yeah. So there are a lot of clinicians and not right or wrong, better or worse. It's just different. Obviously 
anyone in their profession, you would hope that if, you know, they're working with a particular area that they, they're an expert in it. Right. Um, but particularly with mental health, if we are not careful with how we, sorry, my dogs are coming down with their jingle jangles. (laughs) As, as we talk about how it's impossible. I know now not have the personal, you know, invade everything else. They don't ever come down here unless if I'm down here, I'm like, really (laughs) the one time that you can't be down here. That's when you decide to come down. Awesome. Well, it's just like how cats are like, you know, they know the one person in the room of 10 people who's allergic or afraid of cats and they'll go there. Yep. Um, so as I was saying with mental health, it's really important to make sure if you are looking, you know, if it's generalized anxiety, depression, chances are anybody with a licensure in in any sort of mental health field has a pretty good grasp on anxiety, depression, how to treat it, how to work with it with trauma, grief, particular therapy models. It's really important for them to find someone who specializes, which means they've had additional training. They do continuous education around it. Because if we don't, and we go see someone for trauma who's not specialized, there's a potential to cause more harm than good. So there are a lot of people who will say, oh yeah, I come across grief in in my sessions with clients. And then they're talking about grief having a timeline. Or they're telling, I actually had a client come to me and say their previous therapist told them that because it had been six months since their loved one had died, that they shouldn't be grieving anymore. And I'm like, okay, well, and so that's the risk in working with someone who does not specialize. And I'm not, disclaimer, I'm not saying if someone doesn't specialize that they don't do it right. Absolutely not. That's not what I'm implying. For people who are hesitant towards therapy and they really want to make sure they know what they're looking for, I always encourage them, find someone who specializes in grief. Because if they don't, chances are they believe there's these five stages of grief. They believe there's a timeline. And that's just not the case, right? Grief is very unique. There is no timeline. Grief will be forever. And we want to make sure you're working with somebody who understands that. So you have the space to properly grieve because some people come years after their passing. And if they're going to a clinician who believes that the grief should be done after six months, they're not going to get anywhere. They're going to start maybe addressing depression or, you know, all these other areas that the grief may be manifesting in a different way, right? Whereas if someone who specializes might assess for that rather than just looking at the presenting, right? What they're coming in with, we might explore, you know, have you experienced any loss lately that might be contributing to this? So specializing is they've, it's more, niche down. They've done extra trainings on it. They continue to do trainings on it. Whereas working with grief is maybe something that they just come across every now and then, and they enjoy it from time to time, but they don't do any extra or they don't do a a big amount of extra training around it. They may dabble in it from here and there. Um, but whereas specializing people actually do continuous amount of training on that particular topic. Yeah, I can. I can understand that. I think, you know, it's, as you said, people are encouraged to sort of focus in one area or the other. You're still able to see any and all clients that come to you. Absolutely. Whether it's like, I'm, I'm having trouble with my sister or. Hey, I, 
There's another sister. Freudian slip. Freudian slip. Right, right. There's, we there's do, three we sisters a third sister, and a brother. Yeah. So. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's interesting how you assumed it was you. Yeah. Oh, that's true. I did. If it's a work issue about, like, I'm having trouble with my boss, there's sort of all of that. Or it's like, I'm getting divorced or, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with my anxiety or depression or all of those things. And then you're right. And then sort of loss is maybe a part of that. But if really the, if the issue is centered around loss, you're, you're, I can see how absolutely a it's convoluted in a way that you have to really be able to have the patience to untangle. Um, and it's convoluted in a way that it will be different for every person. Mm-hmm. Well, not only the patience to untangle, but also the patience to um, allow the client to feel like they're not moving forward. Mm. Like I will have clients that will come in, they'll do work. They'll feel like they're doing pretty well. And then something happens. Song comes on their favorite show comes on and this whole new grief wave comes over and they're like, I feel like I'm starting at square one. Yeah, yeah. sure. Right. It's a, it's a different wave of grief. I also talk to clients a lot about it, um, levels of reality. So there are different things, you know, when that loss initially happens, it's like, whoa, okay, this is okay. Right. Sometimes we're in shock. We're in disbelief, right. All of this kind of stuff. We're just trying to make sense of it. And we're so busy with the logistics that sometimes that can be a distraction and we feel like we might be doing okay. And then people will come and go, well, shit, funeral's done. Everyone's gone back to their regular life. And here I am still grieving as if it happened yesterday. Right. So that can be a new level of reality of like, oh shit, this is for real. Like this is staying. Right. And then, so we do that work, we do that work, whatever it is. Oh, now a birthday is coming up. Okay. That's another level of reality of, oh, oh wait, like big dates and birthdays and anniversaries and milestones. They're not going to be here for, which intellectually we know, but emotionally we don't know what that means until we hit that that experience until that actually comes into our realm of reality. Right. And it, it, you know, what you said about birthdays is not just my birthday, like, Oh, this person is missing my birthday, but I I've noticed a lot of people go, Oh, that person would be 95 today, or that person would have been 50 today. And so like, you're also processing what they have lost by dying and where they would be. Yes. Yep. And how you also want to recognize and honor them on their day. So that's a hard piece too, right? Of Okay. They're not here to celebrate my birthday, but also when their birthday comes, what am I, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> so having the patience to help them untangle, but also having the patience for them to hit every level of reality. And there is no rhyme or reason on how many levels, what those levels are. Right. But it's in the client's language that I go, it sounds like you know, you've had another level of reality where it's like, oh, oh, okay. Like this is what this really means with them being gone. Right. So having the patience to let them discover that, have them feel like I've gone back to square one. And I always remind my clients, I hear you 100%. We sit in that, we validate that. Absolutely. And while it may feel like you went back to square one, everything we've done up to this point doesn't just automatically wash away. 
how you apply it might look different, but you still have those tools. You still have those skills, right? So being able to incorporate that into your grief journey in whatever way you need to. So having the patience to sit with clients in those um, situations as well. Yeah. I want to just take a little step back because you introduced a a term that I think is really helpful levels of reality, which is sort of like, you know, every time you're, you experience or go through something where you're like, oh, this thing is not this thing anymore, whether the person's not here or I'm not married or whatever it is, you know, whatever loss you've experienced, you know, sort of, um, I've heard people describe it as a wave, like there's the initial wave and then then there's another wave. And then sometimes something comes out of nowhere and you're like, what the heck? That was, I know uh, in WandaVision, they talk about that. Do you know that uh, metaphor? I that, do. I haven't uh, seen it, but yes, I, I know what that is. There's a beautiful place where she's like, it's just, I get hit by these waves. And every time I'm, I feel like I'm able to stand up, I get hit again. And sometimes it just feels like you're drowning. And I think that that was a really accessible way to think about grief. Absolutely. What are other core concepts or what are other, you know, key ideas in, in working, um, you know, doing therapy focused on grief and sort of helping people move through the, move through their grief and sort of come to some tenuous peace with it. I will put it that way. And, you know, I don't think anyone ever goes like, well, it's over now and I'm fine. But to sort of be able to be like, I'm okay. And I know how to manage should something come up or, you know, day to day, I'm doing all right. I appreciate that question. And for those of you who are listening and whether you've been in a grief journey or not, for those of you who are currently in a grief journey, you just get it. You just know, (laughs) right. And you know that there is no closure, right. Of, you know, kind of saying, how do we find peace around it? Because we know it's not just a book that we close and put it on the shelf and go, Oh, okay. Well, that was fun right? We continuously are writing that story. It's just our chapters that we thought we were going to have might look a little different now. Um, and for those of you who are listening, who have never been in a grief journey, buckle up because you're going to. Absolutely. And that's the thing too, of this is an inevitable part of inevitable part of life, right? It is going to happen. You know, I've heard many, many people say of we're all part of this grief club that we don't want to be part of, but we all at some point are going to join the grief club. So being able to really normalize, why are we shaming, putting timelines, putting a particular mold around something that is a natural human response to an inevitable part of life, right? Every human is different. And especially in today's society, we are hopefully moving out of different molds and forms that we're expected to fit, why can't grief be the same way? Right. But if we haven't experienced a grief journey, when we first enter it, when our grief is fresh, we might think, okay, I know, like, you know, I know I got to get to closure and it's got to look a certain way by a certain time. And no, it doesn't have to. And for some people that's really liberating. It's like, woohoo! yes, I can do this at my pace, how I want And for other people, it's really anxiety provoking. Like you mean to tell me there's no blueprint, there's no model, right? So we work with that. So with that, this idea of there is no closure in grief, 
oftentimes people think about this idea of grief getting smaller over time. And I have this awesome visual and I can send it to you guys. Is it the ball in the thing? In the jar. I love that. I love it. Yes. 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 (laughs) Yes. So there's this visual of this ball in a jar. And at the top, it says what we expect to happen is that grief gets smaller over time. So this ball in this jar gets smaller and the jar just stays the same. When in reality, then you look at the, the line below. Grief doesn't get smaller over time, but our jar grows. So our jar, as I see it, represents us right? And our jar is comprised of tools and um, different narratives, right? A support system, resources, all of this. And the more of those that we gather, the bigger our jar is going to be, which means our grief is going to fit a little bit more comfortably in our life. So instead of grief getting smaller, grief is going to stay, grief is going to hang out. And that's okay. That doesn't have to be a bad thing. And as we build our toolbox, get our resources build a safe support system. And I have a podcast episode on what safe support means and looks like. But as we get all of those things, our jar is going to grow. So the grief isn't going to feel as intense and as frequent and as daunting. It's just going to be there. It's just going to be part of our story. But sometimes that ball that fits really well is going to hit one of the sides of the jar and it's going to feel fresh, right? Like I think that is part of it is it may not happen as intensely as often, but when it happens, it could be really intense and it could be like, but I thought I've, I, I thought my, I thought the grief had dissipated or gotten better. And it just like when you hit that birthday or whatever. And I know like, for example, and we don't live in a vacuum. And this is what I was going to say earlier is, you know, our mom, uh, her birthday is on new year's Eve. And our paternal grandmother passed away on new year's eve like 10 years ago so now like there's that intersection of like oh it's my birthday and it's the day that my mother-in-law died or whatever and so there's this bittersweetness every single year for her that jar is just first of all her jar is just a mess but her like that's that's just a convolution that makes it i mean i think and and i want to talk about that too which is what does it take to actually to deal with your grief mm-hmm. right it's not just well wait for the jar to get bigger there's there's actual wor- work that people need to do yeah to, to expand that jar my best friend calls it um the disgusting end table which is oh. you get this end table and it's sitting there and for a while that's all you can do is like, I hate that end table. It's so ugly. It's so blah, blah, blah. And then you start to fill up your house and you've got plants and you've got a beautiful sofa and you've got this lamp and you start focusing less and less on that end table. It's still there. Oh, for sure. Still ugly. It's still ugly, but you don't see it as often until maybe one day you like kind of hit your toe on it and you're like, I did this end table and it's so ugly and I hate, but it's just like, then you have to deal with it. But for, you know, over time, you don't focus on it as much. It becomes sort of, it just becomes part of your life. And so I will say too, how, how you deal with that end table will be influenced by your life circumstance, right? So right away, wherever your life circumstances, it may not be necessary to directly address that end table. Addressing that end table might be filling your house with more 
aesthetically pleasing things or things that bring you joy, right? And then as life circumstances change and you hit your foot on that end table, it's like, all right, let's go. Come on, end table. I'm going to address you directly, right? And so that will show up most commonly. That will show up with where I'm at in my career today with young adults. So let's say anywhere in their 20s, right? Early to mid 20s, maybe late 20s coming in and saying, you know, I lost my parents, mom or dad, or whoever their main caregiver was when I was a teenager. And I thought I had done all that work. Like I went to therapy, I did it, but then here I am. And it feels like it's all fresh and brand new. And I said, yeah, because you probably did your grief work for your 14, 15 year old self. And now you're 25, graduated college, got your first big boy, big girl job. You may be getting married. You might be having kids. Who's usually around for those things? Mom and dad, right? Why would you have done that grief work when you were 14, 15 years old? That wouldn't have made any sense. But now your life circumstances have changed. Your grief is going to look different. That doesn't mean everything you did back in 14, when you were 14, 15 doesn't matter and that it was for nothing. No, absolutely. You definitely gained something from that. And you've carried that with you to today. Now that your life circumstances are different, your grief is like, hey, hey, let's go round two. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's another, it's another one of those waves, right? It's another wave that hits you. My husband's dad died when he was 12. Um, and it was a couple years of him getting sicker and sicker due to malignant melanoma. Um, and whether or not he actually did the grief work, he and I have different definitions of that. Yeah. But he's like, I dealt with it. And I was like, well, you, to me, it looks like you dealt with it by packaging up and putting it way up in the attic and being like, I, let's forget it ever. You know, let's like only remember like three or four good things. Mm -hmm. But that's neither here nor there, I think. The point I was going to make is that it didn't feel, you know, things felt pretty stable for him until our second kid was born, happened to be, you know, we had a boy and that felt, I mean, we had a daughter first and that was, that was kind of a big deal. But when we had a boy, I felt like it was destabilizing um, for him around his grief because he's like, you know, that sort of legacy of carrying on father to son, father to son. Um, that was really, really hard for him. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there are a lot of people also who do this, like, I know Stephen Colbert talks about it where he's like, well, now I'm as old as my dad was when he died. Now I'm older than my dad was when he died. And I, and I think your husband has done the same thing. She, she, maybe not as like, as out loud all the time, but when you had your son, it was like, oh my God, how, how long do I have with him? Right. And now that her son is 11, how much of it's like, oh my God, I only had my dad for two more years. Right. Like where everything is put in context of that. I was as old as my dad. I was this age when my dad was sick and when my dad died and like right around that time. So yeah, that's that sort of level of reality, that wave that comes in where you're like, and you're right. Like, why would a why would a 13 year old kid be processing the kind of grief that would come from being 35 or 36 and having a son? Right. Yeah. And so kind of getting back to your original question of, I think of kind of like, what does the work entail? Yes, exactly. 
concepts, right? The level of reality, the levels of reality, and this idea of grief gets stays the same, but your jar representing you and your skills and yada, 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 all that stuff gets bigger over time. I have also a YouTube channel, which is more education-based, but I have an episode that talks about what is actually the grief work. And I put that in air quotes because what does that actually mean? I don't know, right? <laughs> and depending on what therapist you're working on that specializes in grief might approach it a little bit differently. Uh, but my particular approach is I do meaning-making work and continued bonds. Okay, great. What does that mean? So meaning-making work, we think about as an umbrella term for a bunch of different concepts. So finding meaning in your life after the loss. And I say in your life, because if I were to tell a handful of my clients, the majority of my clients, let's find the meaning behind why this loss happened. They'd be like, F you, I'm gone. Goodbye. Right. I'm, I sit with a lot of bereaved parents. There is nothing in the world oh that anybody can say to them that would go, oh, well, that makes sense as to why you took my child away from me. No. So we talk about meaning making in the sense of now that this loss has happened, how are you making meaning of your life currently and moving forward? So it's an umbrella term for a bunch of different concepts and finding meaning can look different for many, many people. For a handful of people, it's asking those questions. Why me? Why now? Why this way? What if? What if I missed something? What if I done something differently? What if I was a little bit more attentive? Whatever it might be. So it might be exploring those unanswered questions. For some people, it might be legacy, right? What legacy did my person leave behind that I want to carry through? What legacy do I want to leave behind? Uh, for some people, it's purpose, um, this will come up a lot. I mean, it can come up for really anybody, uh, but I hear it most from obviously, of course, my parents, right? Am I even a parent now? Right. That's more identity stuff. So meaning making can be identity work too. um, the loss of identity, but this purpose piece comes a lot from caregivers. Well, I'm not caregiving anymore. That's like all I've known for however long, what do I do? what do I do now that this person that I was caregiving for is no longer here? So, and I never ask, I never ask my clients like, how, what, how do you make meaning? Cause they, they're like, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. Right. So I listen to their narrative, which is also part of this meaning making work. What is your current story around your loss? What story are you telling yourself? What story are you telling people? Not that it's wrong. Not that it's right. It's your story. How are you making sense of it? So I listen to what their current story is. I pull from that and say, it sounds like there may be some identity loss here, right? Yeah, of course you're wondering, am I still a mother? If my child isn't physically here with me, does that feel right for you? Or it sounds like there might be a sense of purpose that's missing. Does that feel right for you, right? So I pull from their language and the story that they're giving me. And I ask them, you know, what feels right? What doesn't? And we together, we work on rewriting their story. We might pull from different chapters of the book that they previously wrote and incorporate them in the chapters moving forward. But we are never totally closing that book, right? We're just rewriting what we thought our story was going to look like by finding meaning and moving that forward. So that's the meaning-making portion. And then the continued bonds is this idea of death ends a life, not a relationship. So just because someone physically isn't here with us does not mean we can't have a relationship with them. 
this gets a little um, touchy because there's some beliefs of, well, that right, spiritual beliefs, religious beliefs, whatever it is. So we explore what feels right for you, right? And this continued bond could simply just be, oh, I heard a song that they love today. And that helped me feel a little connected to this person. For some people, it might actually be praying and talking to God and talking to, hey, can you send me a sign from my person? For some people, it might be connecting with mediums. So really exploring what would being connected with your loved one look like since they're physically no longer here. And uh, oftentimes that it's hard because people don't, some don't feel that right away. And then they get frustrated. What am I doing wrong? Why everybody else feels connected, but I don't like what, what am I, what's happening? Um, So we explore that a little bit. And, you know, if you talk to, to mediums that, you know, they say you just have to be open to what they're sending you, you know, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, we explore what helped you feel connected to each other when they were physically here, right? Like what were your things together and how does that feel now? But the most common, I'm going to go out a limb here and say the number one common thing and almost a certain thing that I've heard from every single client that's felt connected to their loved one is they say, I felt their presence. How they felt that looks different for everybody, but that exact, I felt their presence has been communicated by almost every single client that finally felt connected to their loved one. And every time I'm like, Ooh, right. In my head, I'm like, Oh my God, I got chills. That's so beautiful. And I'm like, tell me more. Right. So I asked them like, what did you feel? What was different that let you know, Oh my gosh, my person is here. And sometimes it'll come when they don't even expect it. Right. Cause they've let their guard down. They're not, you know, they're just open to whatever. And it's like, Whoa, okay. There it is. So the, how I define the grief work. And I put that in air quotes you know, it can be different for everybody, um, is doing the meaning making work, which is, you know, exploring your current narrative of how you're making sense of the loss and how it fits in your world and working on rewriting that. And then how do you stay connected to your loved one, even though they're physically gone? It's so amazing. You talk about, you know, that these two particular concepts, the idea of, you know, meaning making and connection juxtaposed on the background of, at least in the United States, um, and mo- I think most Western societies, we don't do grief. We don't want to talk about oh, it. No. We don't mm-hmm. want anyone around us to be think we don't want anyone to be sad. Oh my God, keep it away from like it's like we would get sick uh, and it, it would be infect us ourselves. <laughs> it's not contagious. Right. We're so um so deeply uncomfortable with somebody who's grieving that we either ignore it or we say the most awfulest things we could with the intention of making ourselves feel better rather than the other person, right? I was going to give the example. I knew somebody who, who lost her dad and like two weeks later found out she was pregnant. Every single person was like, Oh, it's like you lose one and you gain another life. Like, Oh no. And so she, she goes, okay. But do you realize that? Like, do you have your grandfather around? Right? Oh. Like, did yeah. you grow up with your grandfather? It's not like every grandfather has to die before a child is born. <laughs> right? Like, it's not like a zero-sum game. People who don't understand grief or don't want to deal with it, they say the dumbest, worst things. Like, we're terrible at saying things. Right. 
And so I, oh my God, I talk about this all the time, which is why I just love what I do because I love to validate the people who are grieving. Like, I'm so sorry that that shit-tastic person said that thing to you. And for those of you who are supporting and saying those shit-tastic things, come to me <laughs> yeah. so I can help you in overcoming. Because more often than not, they are not vicious. They are well-intentioned, but they come off as dismissive, super invalidating, cold, right? And I actually, um, this month's YouTube video is talking about overcoming the most common three obstacles to providing effective support. And one of them being, we either don't know what to say or when to say something. So we just don't say anything at all. Or we say stupid things like that, that leave the person feeling like, well, okay, I awesome. Cool. So, and then, you know, I provide different skills on, you know, what to say instead or how to approach it. Right. But yeah, it is super common of, you know, we would hope that they're well-intentioned, but because we're uncomfortable with other people's discomfort and we need to ooh, make ourselves feel better. Oh, well you lose one and you gain another. Oh my God, please stop. <laughs> Don't. Right. So people do and say things that as you said, let's assume that 99.9% .9 of those people don't intend to be hurtful. They are not malicious, but they really have no idea what to do or what to say. And so they say something that they don't intend to be somewhat comforting and ends up just being awful. Or they ghost because they're like, I don't know what to do and I don't want to make it worse. So I'm just going to run away. Yeah. Also hurtful. But then there's this, so there's that bit of it. But then, you know, what, as I heard you talking about these you know, levels of reality and the jar theory and all of these, you know, these four concepts that are centered on grief or that grief centers on, right, that we don't validate any other kind of grief except for death. And then Correct. maybe like really, really tragic situations in which things split up, like my husband left me and like took all of my life savings and I ended up being homeless. Okay, my God, that, wow, that's a really big deal. But if you have quote unquote run of the mill divorce, that's get over it, right? Well, every, that happens to everyone. What's a big, what's a big deal in the grand scheme of things? Or, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, things that come with joy, but also represent loss. Right. If you have a baby, if you get married, if you if you retire, if your kids leave home, if you move to a different city, it all. You know, some of a lot of that comes with joy and excitement. And it's going to be amazing. And it all represents there's always loss. It's not like you don't get to just keep adding great things to your life. Right. right. Endlessly, like I will stay single and be married. And I will not be a parent and I'll be a parent like you, right. You, some of these are binary states and you, and you just can't, uh, you, you can't add them both in at the same time. If one exists, the other does not exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so those, um, there I'm pausing cause there's multiple terms, um, non-death losses, living losses. Uh, the, the more clinical term is ambiguous loss, which was coined by Pauline boss. Is that like when somebody like has dementia and they are alive, but you're like losing them slowly yes. over time. Right. 
Okay. Yep. So that there's two types, actually. There's the type where they're physically present, but mentally and psychologically absent. So that would be your dementia, your Alzheimer's, right? And that that gets into this whole different part of anticipatory grief, right? Where we're grieving before the loss has actually happened and that's its own beast, right? But yeah, this idea of like, I'm grieving everything that they were, but their body is still here. Like, what is that about? So that's one type. And then the other type is physically absent, psychologically present. So that's going to be like military, right? Deployment, um, adoption, yeah, but these ambiguous losses uh, are kind of, I kind of like to say that they're, well, one, they are known as the most dangerous because they don't get recognized. So I refer to them as the hidden losses because nobody, people don't see, they don't know that they're there or they feel something, but they don't know to label it as a loss, which is why it makes them so dangerous because we still experience those common um, initial reactions to grief, right. Of confusion, frustration, maybe some depression, guilt, maybe some relief. I don't know, but we don't know to term it as grief. And I will disclaimer, not everybody will experience grief around these situations. Right. So just know that if you're listening, you're like, um, I don't think I'm actually grieving. That's okay. Not everybody will. And a handful of people do with these non-death living losses, ambiguous losses. So they're known as, or they're seen as some of the most dangerous because they don't get the societal recognition, right? We ourselves don't acknowledge them. So we don't know what to do with them. So we don't honor our grief journey when they still carry the same concepts, right? We have that initial wave of grief, like, oh God, I've been served with divorce papers. Like what, what is actually happening? And then we're busy with the logistics, right? We're going through all, we're hiring an attorney. We're doing all this. We're fighting for custody, da, 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 all this stuff. And then it's final. Uh-oh. Oh no. Like now. Oh my gosh. Okay. Here. Okay. Here I am sitting with what I thought my marriage was going to be, what I thought my kids were going to have myself. My parents divorced when I was a kid. So my uh, grief kind of looked like what I hoped my family was going to look like. And I remember specifically probably about a week or so before my parents told me I, for whatever reason, and this gives you a little glimpse into my mind, which probably makes sense as to why I'm a therapist. But I remember looking at my family and going, no, this is my family. Like nobody's going to take my family away from me. I love our family. Look at our little unit. And then probably about a week or so later, my parents told me they were divorcing. So Right. So it's just, they have the same concepts. And even now being a grown adult, it still shows up particularly around holidays or weddings, right? Like, okay, you can sit at the same table. Like it's going to be fine. <laughs> right. And sometimes you're like, I just wish I had one set of parents to go to on the holidays. I don't want to go to this side and then that side. And then, oh my gosh. Okay. Well, my stepdad has 12 siblings and they are, they're all partnered. So I can't invite all of them to the wedding. Cause then I got to invite my stepmoms, and then we're going to reach our max capacity. Right. So these non-death losses or these ambiguous losses have the same concepts that we encounter with death loss. And yet we don't give it the space to grieve. Like we do the death of a loved one. Why? Well, I think, you know, when you said we're all part of this, we're all going to be part of a grief club. I think we all are part of the grief club. It's just 100%. some of us are like associate members and some are like, you know, like lifetime members or whatever. I mean, if anyone's ever gone to college, 
or moved cities, you know, or went to a different school and you lost your friend, like there's grief there, right? Mm -hmm. There's something about going to college, which is like, on one hand, you're like, this is exciting. On the other hand, you're like, that part of my life is over, right? I think that's one of the hardest things about being alive in general is that you only get to move forward. You never get to, you don't get to go back and forward. So when something's done, it's done. And no matter how great it is or wasn't, it's done. We don't acknowledge that. We don't recognize that. In fact, generally we all go, well, what do you have to be upset about? What do you have to complain about? You know, especially if those things, if that loss is also comes along with something great. Well, why are you sad? What do you have to be upset about? You know, just focus on the good things. We ourselves feel guilt about grieving. Yep. Guilt. I would even challenge that the more powerful feeling is shame. We're shaming ourselves like shame on me for feeling like I've lost something when I've brought a child into the world, but I have lost every single sense of who I am as a person because now I'm just a mother to this child or father, right? But I'm speaking for myself, right? This identity loss of who am I outside of being, I don't know, right? But oh, but I just gave birth to a child. Like, yeah, very exciting. You can have that. You can be excited about that. And guess what? You can also in the same vein have loss and grief around the fact that your identity may may feel absent right now. Not always. It won't forever unless you don't do the grief work. But you can also have that joy while also feeling an absence of or an ambiguity around your identity. And that's something, another concept, right? You had asked of, you know, what are some frameworks or concepts of grief? This idea of the dual process model, which essentially is oscillating between grief oriented stuff, whatever your grief is around and just restoration stuff. So if we, you know, we stick to the same example of becoming a parent, oscillating between some of the identity loss and bouncing back and forth between that and being a parent. Both can be together. They can coexist and it is okay. I think uh, like Shailshi and I both can, cause we're both parents, we're both moms and um, we can both identify with that. But for me specifically, I went through about a year and a half, I'll call it two years of like infertility and miscarriage. So I had two miscarriages that I know about, probably three. I, I was trying really hard to get, to be a mom. I was go, I was doing injections. I was getting, you know, blood work every single week. I was trying really hard. And then I finally found out I was pregnant and there was this like joy, holy fuck, like, oh my God. And then my husband had to go to work and I started crying, started bawling and going, oh my God, I'm giving up this life that I love, everything about my life. And I'm changing that on purpose. And I think it hit me really, really hard because I felt like I couldn't, like Shailisha was maybe the only person I could talk to about it because I knew she wouldn't judge me for it because everyone else would be like, uh, you went through two years of trying really hard to get pregnant. And I think that hit, that was harder. And Shailisha was like, I think you're having a really big reaction to this because you feel like I tried really hard to get make this happen and now I'm like you were shitting on yourself you were just shitting all over yourself I should be happy I should be excited 
I shouldn't feel bad. I, you know, I tried so hard. There's this sort of like, this is how it's supposed to happen. You know, and I wonder if that's probably the most harmful thing we do to ourselves as we go through grief is come into it with this, like, this is the way it's okay to feel in this situation. And anything outside of that is I'm doing it wrong or there's something wrong with me. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, and this, and this construct or this mold that society has created that we should be fitting into, should be fitting into. Um, I have another blog article that talks about it's literally, am I going crazy? Right. And one of the things that have people questioning that they're like, is something, I think something's wrong with me. Like I'm, Oh my God. Like I'm, I have, I'm experiencing all these different things and it, it pulls more from, so Alan Wolfelt is a big figure in the grief world, but he talks about these different touchstones in grief um, that, that you might hit along your journey. But he, one of them being these things that are seen as abnormal in life are actually seen as normal in grief, right? So this, this kind of shift in time of, you know, people will talk about like, sometimes it feels like it was just yesterday. And then I look at it and I'm like, oh my God, that was five years ago. Like what, or even their days, they're like, it feels like minutes are just crawling. And then I look and it's five o'clock already. Right. So kind of just this time, uh, you know, disorientation, um, this brain fog walking into a room and going, what? Hmm, nope. Okay. Or they'll be in a conversation. They'll literally just drop off. Right. Like they don't, they didn't know what they were talking about. They may not even know that they were talking or that they were carrying on a conversation. So, you know, these are some of the things that people will experience and they'll come to me. And usually in the first or second session, they'll go, it, they'll either preface their experience with this question, or they'll tell me their experience. And then they'll ask me, is there, is there something wrong with me? Like, am I okay? So when I hear that, and then obviously what they're experiencing, I'll say, no, nothing's wrong with you. You are human. You are having a natural response to death or a non-death loss, and it's called grief. Let's explore that. <laughs> Let's talk about it. You know, and obviously, of course, they get to say yay or nay if that feels right for them, right? Because they're the expert on them. And even though they may not know exactly what their grief journey is, they're still an expert on their grief journey. I'm not. I just give them different things to explore, and they get to say if that resonates or not. So yeah, this, this feeling of going crazy or is something wrong with me, that is a very common experience in grief. Absolutely. Wow. I think, you know, and I just, the, the reason I keep talking about, you know, non-death loss is because people are so on, people are uncomfortable talking about loss period, but the non, the non-death loss. And I think, you know, people are okay. If someone's gone, they're gone. And mm -hmm. then, you know, for the sort of, what did you say when they're psychologically gone, but physically here, people can also kind of wrap their head around that too. And that comes with its own set of challenges, but like, oh, my husband was fine. Or my, my, my coworker was fine. My best friend was fine. And then they had a stroke and now they're, they can't talk. They, you know, I don't, they have minimal brain functioning, whatever that is, right? That's not them even though their body is still here, I think people have a much easier time wrapping their heads around like, oh, but you're, you have lost that person in your life, even though, you know, they're the shell of their, their physical being is here. That doesn't make them the person. 
and and then sort of all this other stuff i keep i keep going back to that because this is what we most people everyone will experience a death you know death loss in their life one way or the other but the not the non-death losses are the ones that we go through all of the time and the ones and i think i can imagine particularly as a a, a uh, marriage and family therapist that's the stuff that mucks up the the works yeah between people in relationships you know I was as you were talking about all this stuff about meaning and connection I was thinking about our mom who gave up her career mm-hmm. in dentistry to raise children yeah. and then all of her kids grew up and left and my mom almost to this day still doesn't know what to do with herself our mom doesn't know what to do with herself and tries to mother us as if we were 10 or 12 years old. Don't forget to take your vitamins, drive safe, make sure you go to bed on time in a, in a way that sort of, it limits the relationship that we can have with her because obviously now I'm at 47, Kosha's in her forties, you know, our youngest, our youngest sibling is uh, in his mid thirties, right? So we're all old. We all are married. We all have children. We all have jobs, all this stuff. And it, it's a limiting thing on our relationship with our mom. But even more than that, it's re-traumatizing my mom, I think, our mom constantly, because she has not really dealt with the fact that her identity of 30-some years is not a relevant identity anymore. You know, you both talked about, like, you don't just get to sit there and do nothing and have your jar grow around you. You both had this awesome conversation about that because, and I actually thought about mom because, or or the ugly end table, like, you get to put up plants and stuff, but what you don't get to do is just go like, I'm not looking at you, I'm not looking at you, I'm not looking at the jar or the, the end table, I'm not looking at the end table. And I feel like a lot of people do that. And so then when they go, well, it's been that's been my life for 45 years. I'm not grieving that anymore because that is just what I did. And that's what I've been doing for 45 years. And you're like, but you never dealt with it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And so I would, I would, yes. And I would challenge and say, and this is not to say you're wrong, just to give a different perspective of somebody can choose to go, yep. I don't want to look at it, but fine. That's your choice. If that's what you want to do. Great. But then when you come to me 47 years later and you tell me you've dealt with it, great. Tell me what that looks like. Oh, I I just, I shielded my eyes and, you know, okay. How did you see that influencing your other areas of your life? How did that serve you? And did that serve the other areas of your life? What are your relationships like with your children? Right. And and maybe, maybe they may not know. They may, may see it as healthy and beneficial, right? But as we continue to work together, then that's where the stuff comes up of like, oh, my, you know, my daughters won't talk to me or they, they seem a little bit more short with me, right? And then it kind of starts coming out. So yeah, somebody can choose to blindfold and be like, nope, it's not there. And okay, if that's what you choose to do. I think the thing is like, you can absolutely choose not to look at it. Yeah. You could absolutely, but, or, and- then do not expect that the world will have changed around you. Yes. That you will not have had to do anything differently. Yep. Denial from now until the end of time is one way that people deal with it. But don't expect everyone else to have changed the way that they deal with you 
to help you manage something that that's your thing to deal with. Right. You know, I think this, this happens on so many levels for so many people and it's on small things and big things, right. This just came, it just seemed really apt when we were talking about meaning and purpose, which is my mom lost her identity when the kids moved out and had no purpose. But she wasn't like, she wasn't like, okay, I'm going to, I have to deal with the loss of purpose. She's like, I'm just going to double down on, on what my purpose has been, whether or not you guys want that or need it. And, and it, it may be one of those things too, if she may not even realize right until, you know, something weird happens or, you know, the, the relationship feels strained. And then at some point someone says something like, are we good here? Right. And then it might open the conversation of, well, now that you asked, right? Like we are competent adults and yet you are navigating as if we are still 10 and 11 years old. We can't fault you for that, right? Like that's how you define being a mother. That's your identity. That's your purpose. And it has to be fulfilled in a different way because we have grown, right? And if you're going to continue to try to fulfill that in the same way you did when we were 10 and 11, you're going to feel empty. You're going to feel frustrated. You're right. Whatever she's experiencing, right? So yeah, we have to work on redefining right? Whether it's redefining our role, rediscovering our identity, that doesn't mean she can't still be a mom. She always will be a mother. The way in which she defines that identity and that role looks different. And then how she executes and engages in that role looks different, right? And I think a lot of parents of two adult children miss that because why would they think about it when they have a baby, right? Because right? Their focus is on raising this baby and then raising the toddler and then raising the adolescent and raising the teen. And then when they don't need to be a parent in that way anymore, it's like, oh, well, this is all I know. So I'm just gonna, ah, right. So yeah, it's right. so that grief work might be redefining what does that role look like that helps you fill that identity, right? We're not asking you to get rid of that identity. No way. Yeah. And there, I mean, you're right. People say, once you're a parent, you're always a parent, whether or not your child is on this earth, whether or not they're grown, what, whatever the circumstances, you know, that's a relationship that you have with, that's a really, that's a connection that you have forever and ever and ever. You're, you're, that identity just sits on you for the end of time. When you talk about connection, like, yeah, you can have a connection with someone's not here, but it's hard to have a relationship with someone when you're trying to be someone and the other people have changed. I think yes. that is, and that's, you know, some ways I feel like that's where things get mucked up, which is my grief is keeping me in a spot or it's making me do, I'm acting in these ways to manage my grief. I'm not aware of it, or I am aware of it and I don't want to mm -hmm. deal with it. And I'm trying to be in relationship with people and it's not working for them. Yep. Cause they're not willing to adapt to the changes that they're seeing. So when I work with well, really anybody, but particularly individuals who are coming for relationship things, usually it's an individual of a couple, whether married or not. One of two things happens. Either the people in their lives realize and notice, wow, they're they're really making changes. This is something new. They've never done this before. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna explore this and see how I can interact with it, right? How do I shift my behavior to match their changes or you know, work well with their changes, or they're gonna fight it. I don't like this. 
that you never used to do this before. Hey, Lucy never used to do this. Kosha would never do that. I, I right. And you're going to be met with resistance, which can be really challenging because oftentimes then people will sit there and be like, I'm doing really good work. Like what? And they're like, am I doing something wrong? Right? Nope. Nope, you're doing the work that feels true to you. And because it doesn't fit with the other person and what they expected or what they want, they're going to fight back. So then we talk about how do we navigate that? And that with grief comes up a lot in families of when my grieving process looks different than somebody else in the immediate family, what do I do? So then we talk about how do you respect their process and where they are while also honoring your own grief journey? And it can get messy, not impossible, but it gets messy at times. Oh yeah, I can <laughs> especially when like you know, even something as simple as like you have two siblings who might let's say they're ten years apart, and you know the the mom that the older one had is different than the mom that the younger one yes. had, just from life circumstances and stuff. So if that, if that mom, you know, it, it gets dementia or dies or something, those two people they're, you know, like they've had different life experiences. Even Shale, she and I, we're only four years apart. And I imagine because we're different people and we have different relationships with our parents. So, you know, when they, I was going to say if, and when they're eventually when they pass, uh, we're going to have different grief journeys. And if you're like, how are you over this so fast? Or why are you so angry still or whatever, right? We know somebody who lost their partner in like their mid forties. And the thing was like, well, it's been a year. Why are you like, you're not fun. Like why are, shouldn't you, it was the impl implication was like, shouldn't you be over it? Shouldn't the Danba or the Dabna or whatever it's called, Danda, shouldn't that be over now? Like, aren't you at the acceptance phase? And so it's again like shooting all over ourselves, but it's it's the fact that we we expect people to like be on our trajectory. Yeah, yeah, we expect people to navigate things the way that we would, or we expect people to interact the same way that we would, or show up the same way that we would, and that's just not it's not the case. And that's not to say that the way they're showing up or doing things or whatever is wrong. It's just different. And we have to be able to recognize that doesn't work for me, or that looks different than mine. That is okay. And also what I'm doing over here is okay. It's not right or wrong, better or worse. It's just different. Um, and if we, you know, butt heads and it collides a little bit, okay, let's talk about it. Um, yeah, but it's just, it's a, it's a tricky thing when, you know, we're all humans and we all do this stuff differently and we just have to be gracious with one another. And if we don't get it, ask, right. Instead of shaming and shooting, be able to label it and say, I'm curious, I'm noticing A, B, and C in your grief journey. That's very different than what I'm doing. It's not right or wrong, better or worse. It's just different. Can you help me understand why, how does that serve you? What is, and obviously these are very therapeutic terms, right? So you're going to adjust this conversation based on who you're talking to and whatever, but ask them, right? If you don't know, become curious. How, how does that fit in your grief journey or what does that do for you? Cause it's very different than, than how I see it and how I approach it. Can you help me understand? Because I'd love to, I'd love to know. Yeah. I imagine that marriage in mar grief in marriage so I just I knew somebody who's and it was very tragic circumstances I worked with someone a while back whose son was shot and killed 
and he's playing at a friend's house, one of those like unloaded, unlocked guns, oh, stupid no. situations, right? Yeah. Um, and and the two parents, they ended up splitting up, right? Um, and just how right we talk about like for siblings, the grief journey is is different, and how much you know that can really create um, a wedge. Right. But it's like a million times greater, I think, when you're talking about the death of a child between uh, two partners who are married, they're dealing with their own grief, they're dealing with their partner's grief, they're trying to find support in their partner. You know, I'm an external processor, my husband is an internal processor. And even in things that like, should we buy a new car, which is has no, you know, doesn't have like a lot of negative emotion tied to it, our process is so different. And it's very challenging for us because I'm like, okay, talk about it right now. I would lie. We took online. Like I needed to be all out there. And then, and, and he is not like that. And just so extrapolating that to a situation um, where two people are so diametrically opposed and how they process emotions, period, how completely devastating that can be. And then you have grief upon grief, right? You're dealing with this loss of a parent or a family member or a child. And then you're dealing with the loss of people are not with me when I need them to be with me. Right. Yep. And usually those people are the most important ones in your life, like your spouses. Right. And it's like, I need you here with me. And yet you're wrapped up in your own grief. Of course you are. I can't blame you for that. Right. So yeah, there's, there's, um, challenges in that. And there's also challenges when one of the spouses is grieving and the other one is just supporting. Right. So for example, when my husband lost his grandfather, that was, we had, we were still dating at the time we had been hmm, together, like maybe four or five years. And that was the first loss we had experienced together. I don't know. I don't know how he does grief. I don't even know if he knows how he does grief. So I told him, you know, he got the news. He told me and I said, okay. I said, well, you know, how are you feeling? Blah, 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 all this stuff. And I told him, I said, well, this is our first time navigating this. So I'm going to let you be, but you let me know what you need. And I did, I gave him a space and that, that worked for us. Right. And then just recently he lost his grandmother and based on kind of how we navigated things in the past. And obviously we had been together for a significant amount of time at this point, I kind of knew how to navigate it, but it's hard for me. Cause I'm very, I'm similar to, to you, Shailoshi, in the sense of like, I'm, I'm an external processor, right? Like I just, blah, 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 blah. I need to talk about it. He's very much internal. So it's hard for me to sit. He tells me the news, you know, I, I'm so sorry, baby. Like that, you know, that must be really hard, but whatever. And then I sit with him. I sit with him. I let him do his thing. He does things that doesn't even directly address the loss. Right. And I think it it can be common for us to go down that path of like, oh my God, is he grieving? He's not doing it right because he's not doing it the way I would do it. Right. But I stop myself and go, okay, this is how he processes. And then sure enough, out of nowhere, our youngest dog comes up and he pets her and out of nowhere, he just goes, Lyra, I don't have any more grandparents. Mm. Right. And so that's, I'm like, okay, cue Brit, go come yeah. support. <laughs> and and right. he was probably like, I'm talking to the dog. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Like go away. This yeah. is mine and Lyra's <laughs> time. You, you can go away. <laughs> One of the reasons I told the dog is because she doesn't make me do the hard things. Yeah. 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 So, and right. So it's just, we, pro- every, we process it differently. Um, so yeah, I think being aware that, okay, that is a thing. And then knowing how you process differently, trying to navigate that. And then also knowing that until we're in the actual moment itself, we don't know exactly how we're going to respond. So giving yourself grace, being patient with yourself and become curious. So be gracious, be patient and be curious. Those, wow. I think that is, I mean, I'm going to, we'll, we will bring that back around, particularly as we ask for like, what advice do you have for people? But those are definitely, you know, huge that's always, that's good advice for everything in all times mm-hmm. as related to emotion. Right. Um, but like, especially as people who are supporting someone going through a process mm-hmm. and it doesn't even necessarily have to be going through grief. Anybody who's going through a hard time, be gracious, be patient and be cautious, like curious, right. I think if you don't the know, curiosity ask. piece, I think the curiosity piece is is particularly important and particularly difficult, especially when you're dealing with people, you love them. And so you want to fix it. So just sitting there and be like, what can I do? How can I help? What do you need to hear? Do you just want me to sit here and do nothing? Like, oh my God, that feels like I'm doing, I'm clearly doing nothing. Right. And so we just want to jump in and, and give a solution. So the being curious piece, my guess is that's the one that people don't it's not their go-to and it's really difficult. Yes. So it's not their go-to and, or, and I will just disclaimer this, it shows up as being nosy. There's a difference between nosy and there's a difference between being curious. Nosy is we're gawking when we see a car accident on the highway. Ooh, what happened? Hopefully people aren't getting that sort of pleasure, right? But we're like, what happened? Oh my God. Like, give me the deets. Did you know? Did you, right? So I've sat with um, a, a widow in particular, I won't even use that because that we've done some work around that. A client of mine who is a widow, which is part of her story. We've talked a lot about people ask like, well, did you find him? What, do you know what happened? Why does that matter? Very salacious details, right? Yep. Like, so knowing the difference between being nosy, are you gawking? Are you trying to just get the juicy deets? Because why? Because everyone loves a story. I don't know. But guess what? Someone's grief journey is not your true crime story, right? Mm -hmm. Or whatever that looks like. So Mm -hmm. being nosy versus being curious. Curious is going to be, how are you holding this information? Help me understand why you process this way. I haven't heard someone explain it that way. Can Can you help me understand that further? Right. So you are asking questions to benefit you. Um, how do I want to say this? You are asking questions that's going to benefit their grief journey. And that's showing them that you are truly there to support them versus being nosy. And you're just trying to get pleasure out of their loss may not be your intention, but that's how it can come off. I had a, I had a friend, a really good friend of mine was a grief counselor. A lot of it was kids who were dealing with like the death of their parents. One, you know, like, so you have like, oh, my dad died of a heart attack or a car accident. And then there was one kid whose dad died um, on a safari and was mauled by a lion. 
Oh my gosh. Wow. Horrifying. And he said, one of the problems that this kid kept facing is that everyone goes, what? How did that happen? And so now not only he has to like deal with his dad dying, right? And the grief around that, but the kid also felt guilty for being like, why couldn't you have just died in a car accident or a heart attack? Like the 16 year old kid is like, why do you have to go and make it like all salacious? So people want to know the story of how that happened. Yeah. 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 And he started like, the kid also was like, I was lying to people and be like, oh, my dad died in an accident, which is, I guess that's not a lie. Which but- I mean, isn't, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. That's how people deal with their grief, right? I think there's also something about, you know, those details are, can be, can be re-traumatizing every time you yes. have to tell someone. Oh, absolutely. Right? There's, there's a trauma of, of the death or the loss. And then you're like, now I got to relive it every time I, someone wants to talk about it. Um, as opposed to, you know, the being curious, which is more about, is there what, are there things I can ask that will be helpful for you? I do remember when my, you know, shortly after, well, it was about a year after my best friend's mom had died and we were talking, we were chatting and I said, you know, I'd love to hear about what it was like growing up with your mom on the farm. If you want to talk about it, like I know your mom from this time forward and I know all the struggles that she had as she got later, but I don't know anything about what it was like growing up with her. Like, do you want to talk about that or not? Or not? I don't want to talk about it. That's fine. We'll move on. Um, And I think that's the other thing people often miss is that they're so afraid to make people feel bad that they don't, they avoid any conversation that might make people feel good. And she was like, no, yeah. I actually, I haven't thought about that in so long. I, we did this, we did that. I used to sit here and I would, you know, can peaches with her. And then, you know, then she told me a story about the, the watermelon and the, and the, the coyotes. And I mean, there was, there was some real laughter and joy to yeah. be, to be remembered from stories but so much of it's just like well they're gone and now it's painful to think about them so no one ever asked questions like what did that mean to you um what was that like and we and that whole curious thing like we assume that the things that would bother us bother that other person maybe it doesn't bother them at all but there's something it's like something that would not never bother you is something that's really deeply painful for them yep Yeah. Well, and by asking that question, so yes, you're being curious and you're doing that in such a respectful way. Also by asking that question, you're challenging two of the biggest fears that people talk about. One being not only will I forget about them, but will other people forget about them? And then also if they do remember them, I don't want them to remember them in their last couple of days, months, whatever, if they were ill right? If it was a tragic accident, that might look a little different. So by you asking that question, you're removing that fear of, oh, okay. So she, she remembers my mom, but she remembers her too from somebody outside of her illness or outside of whatever she was battling that eventually took her life. Right. So yeah, you're being curious, but also you're helping remove some of those fears, or at least I should say challenge some of the fears that people experience in their grief journey. Sure. Or I can, I can see that. Right. And I think people do after a certain amount of time, people do like to remember 
Oh, absolutely. The great things that sometimes even the annoying things. I mean, I've talked to her over the course of years and she's like, oh my God, my mom was so like this. And, you know, and that's where that like sometimes the the sort of I feel bad that I feel good. Uh, about my mom not being here but like my mom was so great in these ways and she was fun and this and that and she was really annoying this way right and and we talk about our loved ones when they're alive like that so yes right like our mom is our mom is an amazing loving kind generous you know we'll do backflips if you if you're like mom i need you to backflip she's like how many how far right she's that person and you go and you're you know you're super annoying sometimes because you know you just can't like let it go she's a kind loving caring amazing pain in the ass that's what yes. she is i mean right <laughs> and i think that is how we think about our loved ones when they're alive but somehow there's this like when they're gone when you either psychologically or you know, this death loss right we cannot talk about anything because it's too painful to remember them period we don't and we don't want to make people feel bad for remembering the good things and then we certainly don't want to talk ill of the dead right even though sometimes the dead person had some really annoying awful qualities and also you might have some unresolved stuff with that person that is also going to complicate things for you moving forward if you don't address it Right. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. Yeah. All those things are part of, uh, you know, the grief work that we put in air quotes. Right. Um, and when and how they show up, that's dependent on the individual, on the person that they lost or the non-death loss. Right. It's all dependent on multiple different factors. The last thing I want to ask you about, this is a little bit of a side, but considering that we all are going to die. And we're all going to know someone that's going to die. How much do you think fear and grief prevents us from actually thinking about our own deaths and, and being thoughtful about what would I want in my last days? What do I want when I'm gone? How do I, you know, how do, do I want people to remember me or do I literally just want to be put, you know, cremated and sprinkled and no one knows where I am, right? What's, how much, how does that play in? Does that, and is that part of your practice, your work? I mean, I can imagine if someone's dying and they have time to think about their death, you know, if someone's terminally ill, they've got time to think about, well, what do I want for my, how do I want to be remembered when I'm gone? What's important to me? And that is a cultural thing too, because other countries do this better than us, right? Yeah. They, oh my they gosh, actually yes. discuss end of life care and what do you want for end of life and stuff like that with their families and then even like in the medical world like you go to your doctor's office and they talk about it so that's particularly here is that correct that we suck at that 100 percent. oh yeah absolutely um yeah i would say it it plays in from what i've heard and seen it plays into each other in the fact of this belief that if we say it, we manifest it. Right. So then therefore we're not, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to say that I'm, I'm going to die someday. I'm not going to talk about what my wishes might be. Um, you know, where I, do I want to be cremated? And if so, like, where do I want to be scattered? Do I not write? Cause Oh my God, now I'm going to manifest. Right. And if that is your belief, I am not 
making fun of that by any right. That feels real 100%. And I've done a lot of pre-planning programs with funeral homes where that's the whole purpose of it, of this is more for your loved ones because there is, you already have so much grief and sadness and just, oh my gosh. And depending on how the loss happened, the last thing we want to do is sit down with a funeral home or a celebration of life company or whatever, and have them go, what do you want? And you're like, I don't know. I don't know what their wishes were. I don't, I don't know. So we explore that. And at least the, I don't know about the funeral homes where you guys are located, but here in Minnesota, some of the local funeral homes have these pre-planning booklets and they're free. If you just tell the funeral home, like, Hey, I want one of these for our, our family. And what it does is it asks you those different questions, right? Like, what are your wishes? What do you want? What do you don't want? Um, and there was an example of one, the mom filled out only one line and it said, do not put me in a pink casket. Okay. okay. Well, at least they knew that much, right? Don't put her in a pink casket and you don't have to do the booklet thing. Like my, my husband lost his, his maternal grandmother when he was in high school and her big thing was she wanted to be walked out to pretty woman. So she was, they walked her out to pretty woman. So even just being able to have, you know, the pretty woman walking mm-hmm. down, pretty woman. Yeah. Um, so being able to just have some of those conversations too, and you don't even have to be, you know, have an illness or be expecting a loss. Right. I mean, some, after some of these pre-planning programs, you know, or, or even not like, we'll just be watching a movie and someone will be, um, what is the movie with, um, Oh, the upside with Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston. Fantastic. Great movie. Right. But he's a paraplegic. So he can't, he he's practically, he can only move his head basically. Right. And we'll be watching a movie. My husband will tell me if I'm ever in that state, just right. Like, I don't want to live life that way. Okay. So we're not having, sitting down, having a really deep conversation. It's just, okay. Noted right at some point. Yes. That's going to have to be legally binding. Like we're going to have to get that in written form documents, whatever, but knowing it doesn't have to be these really scary, deep conversations. It can be in those bypass. Right. And like my, you know, I was telling my mom about the pre-planning program. She's like, what does that mean? Like, what do you do? And she was like, oh, well, I want to be wherever you are. Like, well, what does that mean, mom? Right. Cause she's, she's remarried. And it's like, well, do you want to be buried next to your, your current husband? Do you, she's like, well, I want to be wherever you are. Does that mean you want me to cremate you and keep your ashes in my house until I die? And then your ashes right. are supposed to be buried <laughs> right. with me. Someone in our family was like, well, I, I just pull the plug. And I was like, that's not a thing. Like you can't, that's, that doesn't mean anything, right? The same way that your mom's like, I want to be where you are. Well, that that's very ambiguous. I don't know what that means. All of that. And I will say it's at least a starting point. Yes, agree. You know, so I think it's this piece of knowing and tapping into, do I carry this belief of if I say it, I manifest it? And if so, how do we work with that? Right. Because, and I think it's all, it's a balancing act, right? Because we don't want to be so, I don't want to say naive, but we don't want to be so disconnected that we don't think anything could ever happen. And then something happens and it's like, I, 
I have nothing. Like I, I didn't prepare anything. Like I've left them with nothing, but we also don't want to be so consumed that we live our life in fear, right? In full transparency, as a grief therapist, working with many people who have passed, and I do run a couple of grief groups for um, a cancer organization in Minnesota, Gilda's Club. With that being my constant work, I have needed to find a balance because I started finding myself constantly navigating my life through a lens of I will die someday, which is true, but it's manifesting in, any weird thing I feel in my body, I'm instantly dying. And it's like, okay, well, that is no freaking way to live. <laughs> yeah, right. So right, finding right. a balance, right? How can I talk about it so I know it's a real thing and we can be prepared when necessary, but I'm also not so consumed that it's keeping me from living or I'm living in a state of fear or anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, I get to ask the penultimate question, which is, you know, what advice would you give? But I'm going to ask sort of two uh, related questions. This is what advice would you give for someone who feels a loss and doesn't, you know, like is feeling lost and is like, I don't, I don't know how to move forward from this or what to do. And how, what advice would you give for someone who's supporting someone who's going through a loss? Love that. Thank you so much for that question. And I appreciate you separating it out because it is two very different experiences. So for those of you who are experiencing a loss, whether that's a death loss or a non-death loss, it doesn't matter. They're all valid. Or I should say it does matter. They all matter. All loss is valid. The best piece of advice I can give you is honor your journey. All of my clients, if you were to ask them, which we won't because that breaks their confidentiality, <laughs> right? But if you were to ask people who work with me, what is the one thing that Britt says that you're like, would you stop? And it is honor your freaking grief journey. Seriously. And what that's simple, all that means is you do your journey in a way that makes sense to you. And if you're sitting here listening, I don't know what that means. You will, because you will encounter things that make you go, nah, I don't. I don't know why, but I don't like that. That didn't feel okay for me. Or this is, this is pushing up against something that doesn't feel okay. But this, I really love. Listen to that. Listen to your gut. Your gut knows what you want. There is a, that there is actually validity in that of the chemical that is released that tells you something's wrong comes from your gut. Listen to it. So honor your journey, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, it simply means do what feels true to you that allows you to grieve your loss, whatever it is in a way that resonates with who you are and what you need. Those are for the ones who are listening that are experiencing a loss. For those of you who are trying to support someone who is going through a loss, thank you, thank you, thank you. That is not easy to do. I've already said it, the three keys, be patient, be gracious, and be curious, be patient with yourself and the other person, be gracious with yourself and the other person, and be curious about the other person. If you don't understand why they're navigating something the way that they are, or if you just don't understand what they're going through, be curious, not nosy, curious. I love it. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to be really clear, right? And I've been harping on this basically the entire time, which is because we dismiss and diminish non-death losses so much that it's even more imperative for our listeners to sort of bang the gong a little bit on that and say, hey, listen to this. No, 
we would obviously love for you to share our podcast with everyone, but this episode in particular, everyone's going to go through something like this. And if it's, if, if you are the one person who's been lucky to go through life with zero losses until someone dies in your life, it's amazing for you. Congratulations. Like, that's amazing. I would like to know how you did that, but you, we are all, we are all going to be members of that club mm-hmm. one day, as you said, there's no and way. I would also, avoid. I would challenge that one person and be like, I know there's an ugly end table in your house. You're not <laughs> yeah. talking about it. <laughs> Maybe yeah, it's which end table. table are you not Maybe addressing? Maybe it's a lamp. Maybe it's a rug. What is it? But there's something, right? You're not so, talking about yeah. it. You're not letting me see it. Thank you so much. And you know, our last question, it it's Familact really has to do with shared stories, right? Like you could say a word and and I was just thinking, like, I'm so glad you're on here because Familact really makes sense when you're talking about loss and grief and that like what did you call it like continued connections and because yeah, continued, bonds. continued bonds thank you and because there will be a time like someone's mom dies and then three years five years ten years later oh my god remember how mom used to say this thing and no one else understand it but it it makes sense in your little intimate group so we'd love to hear some um of your family act either in your friend circle with your husband with your with your dad like tell me tell us a few examples of your family act yeah so really the and i'm sure there are a bajillion more that as i'm trying to go to sleep tonight i'll be like oh there's that one the the one that really sticks with me because i when i heard it i was like what and then when i learned what it was and i started applying it i was like this is fantastic so and we used it in I first started using it in my grad school, like uh, it wasn't a cohort. Actually, this might be one of them. We called them cuddle groups, right? That it, right. They're cuddle groups. And as we're talking, you're like, what the heck is that? So we called them cuddle groups because they were people that we connected with in our grad program that understood what we were going through. Right. When you are a therapist, we like to say we're different breeds, Right. People, we just think different, right? And while our our spouses and partners and family, like they can be supportive, they just don't get it. Similar to grief. So maybe you want to form a cuddle group within your grief experience. I don't know. But it it was, you know, a handful of people that it was like, you get me. I can come to you judgment-free, shame-free, and just say this sucks. And you're like, yep, mm -hmm, I get it. So, right, they just kind of cuddle and they hold you. So, So we had cuddle groups. And also within that, we talked about this idea of FOG, F-O-G. So, so FOG stands for fucking opportunity of growth for growth. So it was a fucking opportunity for growth. So anytime we encountered something that we're like, what the hell is actually happening? We'd go FOG, FOG, right? So we use that in our grad program. And then I continue to use it in my personal life too, whether I'm actually communicating it to somebody or not, but we go fog. Okay. Fog, 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 fog. Right. <laughs> well, actually, when you say it 12 times, it starts sounding like the word fuck. So, right. But I think it can be applicable to grief too, right? Fog. Where is the fog within your grief journey? Where is the fucking opportunity for growth? And know that that growth, growth does not have to be beautiful. My logo, best self therapy is my private practice. My logo, I have a lotus flower because the meaning behind yes, a lotus- it comes out of the muck. Yes, yes, yep. 
That's the meaning behind right, Rose Flower. You want to say that again? I didn't no, need no. to steal your thunder there. <laughs> no, no, that's no. I'm glad you know because I don't. Think oh no, the uh, lotus flowers are really, really important in Hindu, uh, in Hindu culture and mythology and symbolism because they do the roots are in the gar in the muck, and then they grow into these beautiful flowers that sit on top of the muck. Yes, growth doesn't have to be beautiful, but maybe what results from your growth can be fan freaking tastic. So form your little cuddle groups and just walk through that fog and do what you have to. That's awesome. That is awesome. This is great. This is amazing conversation. Yeah. And I thank you. I thank you, the two of you for creating a platform to not only just in general, to allow people to speak, right. Whatever they want to speak about. I actually, so March's, um, women's history month. So I had done, um, a, so I mentioned I'm a theater major or I have a theater major. Um, I had done like a self-directed monologue for a, uh, like a, a cabaret or kind of like a montage of these different women speaking about their experience as being a woman in the world, whether it was through dance or song or speaking. Right. And it was called, I am speaking. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that is awesome. Please listen to all of our episodes, but this one is so important because every single one of us, this, and it's so alienating. Grief is so alienating and isolating, but it's one of the things that binds all of us, every single person on this planet. So, yes. you know, it's, it's so important. Um, I want to plug your podcast. It is called Exposing Grief with, with me, Brittany Squillis exposing or exploring exposing so that the mission behind it is that we expose grief for what it truly is which is a natural and healthy way of living and loving love it so exposing grief with Brittany Squillis Brittany Squillis Squillis okay I'm just gonna let you say it and then (laughs) uh because I I like botched it twice so exposing grief with Brittany Squillis yep and that is on Apple Podcasts and Google and all of the Spotify Yep. Pretty much everywhere you can find, um, your podcasts and talk about, and tell me, uh, your YouTube channel. Yep. So YouTube channel, same name, just exposing grief. Um, but that one is more education based. So that one's going to talk more about the kind of the, uh, the, the brainy kind of part of, and the how to's right. The, the how to skills. Yep. Whereas the podcast is going to be more just raw normalizing your experience like hey we are all human and chances are if you've sat in this spot so is somebody else um so it really just helps remove that stigma of grief through other people sharing their experiences so and then i do also have a blog which is similar kind of more education but if you like to read as opposed to listen you've got that option as well and that is exposing grief also no it's just a grief blog um it's just the blog tab on my website best oh, self okay. therapy and your and your website is bestselftherapy.com dot net dot net best self well i just i promise i've done my research <laughs> bestselftherapy.net <laughs> yes Brittany, you got thank it. you so much thank you so much for taking the time to be here talking thank about you. this stuff and doing the work that you do out in the world this is like vital vital work Thank you so much.
Yeah, thank you. And thank you again for creating a platform to not only talk about grief, but to talk about those non-death losses because they're just as real, but we don't talk about them. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for creating space to talk about it and say it's okay to not only experience it, but also to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, stay warm, stay, uh, I won't say stay dry, but hopefully everything melts and you can actually be outside. Well, we've got more snow coming. Oh, yeah, no. so it's it's Monday. We had a little bit of snow last night into Monday. We have a little bit of a break tomorrow. And I don't know what the accumulating inches are going to be, but it is literally supposed to snow Wednesday through Saturday. <laughs> Just like, what is this world? That's too many days. We're, go we're going up to Eau Claire over spring break, which is at the end of March. This feather have stopped. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm like, I'm I mean not going up there with like 15 feet of snow. Like, no, thank you. I went to school in Duluth and I definitely went on summer vacation with snow on the ground. 100%. Yeah. Oh boy. Doesn't happen all the time, but it has happened. But it has happened. And, and more than once, yeah. probably. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. It's fine. Have a lovely evening. Thank you again so much for your time. And um, yeah, definitely reach out. Yes, Thank please. You. Yeah. Stay connected.